The lesson entitled for today is most appropriate for the beginning of a new year. Keeping a balance. When a life is balanced, then it is in a position to bring fulfillment in just about every area in which one would pursue. An unbalanced life then causes a person to be deficient in areas that are important, overemphasizing those attitudes and qualities that need to be kept in focus. Too many of our lives are unbalanced. That's why on January the 1st, we can make all kinds of resolutions to put our lives back in balance. But it's a good choice for this last Sunday of this year, looking to a new year and keeping our lives in balance. And it is Paul's letter to Philemon in which he builds upon this concept. He emphasizes in today's lesson a trilogy in which we can find means by which to balance our lives. Humility, unity, and love. Now, you could go to any letter of Paul and you would find strong emphasis upon these three characteristics because this, above everything else, is the message of Paul to the churches to which he writes his letters. And today's letter is a letter that was written to the church at Philippi. The letter to the Philippians is the most intimate, the most personal of all of Paul's letters, showing that he had a deep affection for the church at Philippi. One might wonder why, because it was at Philippi when he was imprisoned, beaten, but he was freed from prison. The jailer was converted to Christianity. It was at Philippi where Lydia, a seller of purple fabrics, became one of the first Christian converts. Paul had many happy memories of that church. Now he's in prison. It's approximately the year 62. And as he winds up the affairs of his life, he writes this letter to the church back at Philippi. And he says, concentrate upon these things, humility, unity, and love. Humility is something to come hard by for many of us. The writer of the lesson introduced the letter lesson by saying that a television comedian had said that he would, his life's ambition was to search all over the world and find the most humble man in all the world and then force him to admit that he was humble. <laughs> it's mindful of Ralph, who belonged to an organization where every year the organization chose one of their number and named that person the person of the year for that organization. And as they made the award, they always discussed what it was that singled out this person for that recognition. Ralph was given the award this particular year, and as the presenter stood before them, he said that everyone knows the humility of this man. He's great in every respect, but he's so humble.
And we have chosen him because of his humility to receive the award this year. So Ralph accepted the trophy, lifted it up and said, this is one of the proudest moments of my life. <laughs> and they grabbed it back. <laughs> but we talk about humility so often we counter it with pride as being the opposite to humility. And that creates a bit of a problem for us. It's true, pride does come before a fall. It is true that personal introspection to an extreme degree causes us to feel ourselves superior to other people. Pride can become a deadly sin. But to generalize pride as being bad is to overlook the fact that any person's life that is worth evaluating is filled with pride. Because the pride comes from associations and accomplishments. I'm a proud person. I'm proud to be an American. I'm proud to be a Christian. I'm proud to be a Methodist. I'm proud of my wife. And I'm proud of my children. And I take great pride in all of these things. And they do not take away from my life as a spiritual person. We must celebrate pride at the same time keeping it in its proper relationship in which we might become full of an evil pride that would separate us from the good values of our lives. So I've chosen this morning to, for the sake of our discussion to substitute the word pretension for the word pride. And in a sense, that's what Paul is talking about. It's what Jesus was talking about when he talked about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were so prideful. But they had every reason to be. They kept the letter of the law. They were so intent on pleasing God that they kept the most minute of all laws. They were so spiritual that they would lengthen the prayer uh, curtains that they wore from their apron so that they could show people how spiritual they were. They loved to pray in public places to call attention to the fact that they had a close relationship with God because they did. But it became a matter of pride. They were pretentious in it and it became a negative instead of a positive relationship. And so Jesus called them hypocrites, pretentious people, pretending to be something on the outside that they really weren't on the inside. Sloan Wilson is a famous writer of a generation back. He wrote The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit and A Summer Place, among others. These were made into motion pictures and were widely acclaimed. Sloan Wilson said that as a young man going off to college, his father was fearful that he would lose his perspective. His father was a journalist editor of a magazine. He had graduated from the University of Virginia and discovered that there were quite a few sons of the South attending the University of Virginia that portrayed images that he didn't want his son to become like. His son had been accepted to Harvard University. He was fearful of what the impact of his son going to Harvard, what it might have upon his son. And so he 
the counseled him as he went off to college to remember who you are, to keep fresh the commitments that you have made in your life. Practice those disciplines that make you the person that you are. And don't be swayed by other people. He was young, he was malleable, and he was at Harvard. When he came home for Christmas, he had a Harvard accent. <laughs> His father was concerned, and he said, well, son, you seem a little different from the way you were when you went. And he said, I'm a Harvard gentleman now. And he said, what is a Harvard gentleman? And he said, Harvard gentlemen are those persons who have risen above the average person. And his father said, well, what is there that distinguishes a Harvard gentleman from anyone else? And he said, well, for one thing, they date the girls from all the exclusive schools and go to all the social activities. And they know fine wines. They know how to choose a wine, not just by color or by name, but they know the innuendos of good wine drinking, and they know their wines. And they appreciate a good cigar. Now, this was back in the 30s when a cigar was smoked usually by rich bankers and physicians and others of wealth. And it was a mark of wealth. That is expensive cigars. This was when you could get the Cuban cigars. And the father said, well, what do you consider a good cigar? And he named the most expensive cigar that you can get. Back then, they were 50 cents apiece, as opposed to the regular five-cent cigar. Well, when Christmas came and the young man opened a package from the tree, there was a box of that expensive cigar. He was thrilled to death because he really couldn't afford them on his budget at Harvard. He only smoked them occasionally, but now here was a whole box full. Every day while on vacation, he leaned back and smoked one of these fine cigars, relishing every moment of it, inhaling the smoke, blowing out the circles of smoke. His father watched him from a distance, enjoying being a Harvard gentleman. <laughs> when he got ready to go back to school, his father gave him a box and said, I have a present for you to take back to school with you. The young man opened the box and there it was full of 50 cent cigars. The very cigar that he had depicted as being the best that you can get. The only thing is there was not a single wrapper on a single cigar. The father had taken the wrapper off the 50 cent cigars, put them on the five cent cigars. <laughs> and the young man smoked with great relish his five cent cigars, thinking that he was a Harvard gentleman. <laughs> and with that, Sloan Wilson said, his father said, don't ever make judgments by what you see on the outside. A Harvard gentleman is a gentleman if he has on the inside what all gentlemen possess. Sloan Wilson said, I learned that lesson well. And when I went back to Harvard, I was myself. Pretentiousness can keep us from becoming the full person that we are capable of becoming. And the scripture very strongly opposes thinking too highly 
of yourself. Paul said when he wrote to the church at Rome, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Humility. Humility is keeping it all in perspective and not thinking that you're better than someone else. We're all equal in the sight of God. And in a sense, we ought to be equal in the sight of each of us. Some of us have attained greater prestige by the work that we've done, the accomplishments that we've brought about. But what's on the inside isn't based upon how much money we've been able to make or how successful we are in our profession. It's a matter of the values that come from Christ, the value-oriented life, and all of us can be gentlemen and gentlewomen by that process, not based upon wealth, accomplishments, or fame. Paul said, be humble. Humility reflects Christ. And then he said, don't be, <clears throat> don't be arrogant. Don't seek to provide for yourself those things that set you apart from others that make you become self-centered, that make you accept for yourself that which you are unwilling to give to other people. <clears throat> Don't be arrogant, he said. Don't look out only for your own interests. But determine ways in which you can fulfill the needs of other people by the use of your own abilities and skills. Don't choose a profession that gives you simply enhancement of self, but choose a profession that will allow you to use your gifts to elevate the lives of other people. I mentioned before how in times past, Carlene and I would have the graduating seniors from high school for a personal dinner, and we would talk about their future and their goals. On one occasion, I recall of about 12 present, everyone, when asked, what is your goal, gave the name of a profession, and I said, why did you choose that profession? Because it pays good money. No job can pay enough money to force you to sit there for seven or eight hours a day doing what you dislike doing, waiting for the moment when you can get away and do something you want to do. How much better to be doing something every moment of the day that gives you fulfillment and satisfaction. I've enjoyed every moment of my professional life. I went to, through imaging myself in three or four professions before I graduated from college. But this is the only one that would have given me the fulfillment that I've had. A profession that gives fulfillment is one that does not enhance yourself, but enhances others. My son Wesley graduated from Emory University along with four other students, and they were close friends. They were bonded in many ways. And on graduation day, when they came to the point of separation, each one of them had excelled in college and were members of the Honor Society, and each one was going off to graduate school. They'd come from widely spaced places, and so they made a pledge on the day of their graduation that 
five years from that, from that time, on the fifth month, the fifth day, at the fifth hour, they would come together on the steps of the administration building at Emory University and bring one another up to date in what they were doing with their lives. One catch, no notices, no reminders were to go out. Each was to remember it five years later. I can remember well the day that Wesley came by our house on his way to Atlanta. He told me where he was going and my heart sank. I thought to make a trip that long and nobody be there. How disappointing it's going to be. But in reality, everyone was there except one of the five, four were present. And they began to share what they were doing now with their lives. My son had gone to medical school and was in medical practice. One had become a minister, a Methodist minister, and was serving a church in Alabama. One had graduated from Emory Medical School, had, had gone further in his studies to be employed by the Communicable Diseases Center on campus and was a member of the medical faculty at Emory University. That left two, Frank and Ralph. Frank was a young man, he was a black young man who on graduation from college had been given the highest honor that the university can give based upon academics, upon leadership, and upon character. And because he was a person of that nature, having been given that award, he was granted a full scholarship to the School of Law at Harvard University. He had gone to Harvard completed his studies and graduated with honors. He was courted by all of the great law firms in Chicago and Washington and New York. He was asked, but what did you do? He said, I went to Harlem in New York and I opened a storefront for legal counsel so that I can use my skills to bring the young black men and women out of the ghettos into a society where they can find a place for themselves. The one who showed the greatest potential was courted with wealth and fame, went into Harlem in New York to give his life to bring meaning to the lives of young men and women who would die in poverty and crime, never given a chance. The other was Frank. This was Ralph. Frank went to medical school, became a doctor, did his residency at the medical college of the University of Virginia, specializing in family practice. On graduation, he went to Memphis, went to the downtown churches of Memphis and got their support, and he opened a downtown clinic. Only those who did not have insurance and those who did not have adequate income could be patients at that clinic. He brought in others of like-minded as nurses and physicians assistants. A few years ago, I picked up a magazine, a Tennessee magazine, had named five people who had made a big difference in the state of Tennessee. One of them was Minnie Pearl. One of them was Frank. He had made such an impact that he was recognized as one of the real movers of the state of Tennessee. 
Each one had graduated with honors, had the potential for making great wealth and fame. And this is what they chose for themselves. Do not choose for yourselves, Paul said, that which is self-induced by using your gifts and your abilities for the benefit of others. If only every high school and college graduate could get a glimpse of that to see what really brings fulfillment and meaning to life. Humility. And then Paul said, unity. He begged for unity within the church at Philippi as he had for all the other churches because dissension with any group, no matter what group it is, dissension will destroy, will separate, and will weaken. And the church at this time needed all of the concerted strength that it could get. Every time Paul wrote a letter, at the heart of that letter was unity, unity. That doesn't mean thinking alike. This group doesn't think alike. My word. We're all independent thinkers, and that's the way it ought to be. I've never said anything that I wanted anybody to accept because I said so. Because I've never accepted anything because somebody else said so. I'll accept it, but not until I have raced it through my mind, looked at other alternatives and possibilities, worked through to my own conviction, and then it becomes my conviction. But if I just take it on somebody else's word, it doesn't belong to me. I'm living on somebody else's premise. We need to be independent thinkers so that we can take the facts, come to a conclusion, and then live by those things. We need unity, and that doesn't mean thinking alike. It means with a common purpose. We want to glorify Christ. We want to take Christ to the masses around the world. We want to be missionaries to those who are in need. These are the premises of Christianity that we all hold in common. Our theological beliefs are antithetical to that. They're subservient to that. Our theological beliefs are mainly for our own pleasure and fulfillment. And as John Wesley said, if it does not strike at the heart of Christianity, then believe and think independently, regardless of how others think and believe. When we're all in the same pattern, thinking alike, looking alike, acting alike, then energy is drained for any one of us because it is bringing together all of the gifts, all of the abilities, and in mass we can accomplish great things. As Paul said, we are all members of one body, but we're all different. The hands, the feet, the head, the mind, the heart, each one independently, but we all make up the same body. The body without any of these would be less than what it ought to be. The body with all of these is complete, and so it is with us. Paul said, be unified in everything that you are. Don't battle with each other. Don't fight one another. Be unified in the things that really matter. And then he said, as Christ loved us, love one another. Jesus exemplified everything that he did through love. 
And when you act in love, there's no limit to what you're able to accomplish and what you're able to receive for yourself. This is a trilogy that Paul named in his letter to the Philippians. Humility, unity, and love. Now, integrate that into the foundation of your life as you go into a new year. And I promise you, when that year comes to a close, you'll be far better, far happier, far more fulfilled than the person you were when you began. Any comments or questions on today's lesson? No comments or questions? You, you're usually good at that. <laughs> I think it's a good job. No, I wasn't. I wasn't fishing for a compliment. I wanted. I wanted you to. I wanted you to expand our thoughts. I was ready to applaud. Oh yeah. <laughs> I thought it was so good to hear Gideon blow the horn after you. <laughs> I better turn it over to you. <laughs>